All right, if you take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Genesis, Genesis, all right, and uh, if you'll look here in chapter 7 this morning, chapter 6 brought us to the pinnacle of the godly line of people that existed during the time of Noah and the ungodly line of people that existed during the time of Noah. The earth still has people like that today. We still consist of believers and unbelievers, those who follow uh, the Word of God and believe in His promised Savior, and those who reject that or corrupt it, pervert it like Cain did. So um, we're still that way today. There has always been uh, what the Bible calls a remnant there's always been some people on earth who believe the promise of Christ and put their trust in Him. Uh, there's never been a time when there have been no believers, all right? And so uh, even though the vast majority of people on earth do not uh, trust in Christ, um, there's always some who do and who will and who have. So Noah and his family now are spared from the judgment of God through that ark. Remember, the ark was a picture of Christ. Only one ark, only one way of deliverance that God provided. And man had a choice. He could either put his trust in the ark that God provided, or he could try to make his way without it. And uh, But they did not. If you look here in Genesis seven eighteen, And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth. And the ark went upon the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. Uh, fascinatingly, um, the mountains being covered, uh, I was listening to a, a man talk about the mountains in one particular area, and there was... Uh, how the scientists said they were once covered in salt water. And, uh, and of course, the man speaking about it, he was a believer, and he said, we all know how they got covered in salt water. Uh, in Jacksonville, Texas, how many of y'all know where Jacksonville, Texas is? That's almost everybody in here, except for maybe Jonathan. Well, y'all know, let's see here, you got a big old hill like that. And you got a roadway coming, and people come up against that hill. What do they do? They cut right through those hills. Uh, Tammy and I just got back from uh, Indiana, and we traveled through Arkansas. And uh, there's some hills that got cut through there in Arkansas made out of rock, and there's just rock on each side of you as you go through them, and every now and then little rocks will fall down and everything. And so they cut through these hills... So they can continue their journey, and it leaves these jagged edges here on the side where the hills were cut out. And in Jacksonville, where I used to be a highway patrolman, we had uh, a place just like that. Uh, it's called uh, Highway 69, U.S. Highway 69. Still go to this place today. There's a little. Scenic overlook here called Love's Lookout Park. 
Anyone ever been there? Nope. And then, uh, anyway, it's got a beautiful scenery here where all that's just, just you can see so far because it goes down. And then you have this high hill here and the highway through it. And we're nowhere near the ocean. But I remember one day, uh, the first time I saw it, I was patrolling through this area and I saw some people climbing up this hill where it would have been cut out. And they had little picks and stuff picking in the hill. And I thought, what in the world are they doing? So I pulled my patrol car over and I mean, they weren't breaking any laws, but I thought, what are they doing? And I walked out there and I said, uh, what are y'all doing? They said, oh, we're with the University of Texas. Uh, we're uh, hunting shark's teeth. I said, are you serious? They said, yeah, there's shark's teeth all in these hills. And uh, then it became an annual thing where I guess the students, whatever class they were taking, I don't know, paleontology or whatever they were taking, uh, every year I would see the University of Texas students out there digging for shark's teeth and little fossils and things like that. And I started thinking how absolutely amazing all this area right here used to be under salt water. Sharks used to, where I'm at on this big hill, sharks used to swim where I'm patrolling at. That's not some kind of crazy Christianity. That's fact. You can go there today. I don't know if they're still digging, but uh, they dug for years there while I was over there. It's fascinating to me. And we see here why the, the, the waters of the flood were over the mountains at that time. They surpassed them. In verse 20, 15 cubits upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered. Verse 21, and all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beasts and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man all in whose nostrils was a breath of life, of all that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. This is where a lot of our fossils came, our fossil fuels that we have, and where they were entrapped. Uh, deep in the earth, because the the groundwaters, the Bible says in the book of Genesis, were broken up in that time. So you had water coming from below, you had water coming from above. The fountains of the deep were broke up, the Bible says. There was a cataclysmic hydraulic event that took place during that flood. It changed the earth, changed the scenery. It encapsulated uh all animals except for what was on the ark and uh and so you can still dig up these fossils today it's quite amazing and uh the only people the only animals the only birds alive were those in the ark and uh so quite amazing now if you'll look here in uh, verse 24, and the waters prevailed upon the ark in 150 days, chapter 8. 
And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. In other words, uh, in time, God caused wind to pass over the earth, which caused evaporation, which uh, and, and between the evaporation, the clouds go, uh, going up back to the sky, uh, and waters being above the firmament, and uh, through uh, um, the uh, the waters sinking back down into the earth, between the two, the waters assuaged. Uh, in other words, the, the earth sort of drying back up again. Verse 8, the fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped. Do you see that? Not only the windows of heaven, but what? The fountains of the deep. You see, both were were broken up and water was coming from both sources, both above and below. It was very cataclysmic. Uh, so the water has stopped. Verse 3, and the waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of the 150 days, the waters were abated. And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. And so now the water is going away. There's a very, uh, apparently uh, Noah kept a very good uh, log of what took place. And we have the exact days that the ark, the day the ark rested on the calendar year, the month, uh, the day that he could see the tops of the mountains, uh, as the water begins to decrease. Uh, verse six, and it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made. Remember, there's a window in the ark. Course, it had to be closed uh, when the rain was coming in. And so, and he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. He also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned to him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark. And he stayed yet other seven days again, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. The dove came into him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. And he stayed yet other seven days and sent forth a dove, which returned not again unto him any more. And that let him know, hey, it's probably okay for us to get out and go down, you know. Um, Verse 13, and it came to pass in the 600th and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the seventh and twentieth day of the month, was the earth dried. And God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee bring forth with thee of every living thing that is with thee of all flesh both of fowl and of cattle and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth so now god wants them to get off the ark and the animals the fowl the bugs and everything else He's going to repopulate the earth with what was saved in the ark. And uh, 
So let's go ahead and look here now. And that's including people. It's time to repopulate the earth. All the people now are believers. Every one of them are believers. And we'll talk about it here in just a moment. Verse 20, And Noah built an altar unto the Lord. So here we see an altar just like Abel and Cain had, and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now remember, he took seven of those. So they were able to offer the offerings and uh, and eat. And uh, so he offers an offering to the Lord. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. So this is God's um, uh, law here that he established after the flood. Noah builds an altar. Noah offers to God the clean animals. Notice that in verse 21, the Lord smelled a sweet savor. All right. So when they offered an offering, I'm going to go ahead and get off the mountain here and put us an offering up here. Sir? I'm sorry? What's he saying? Oh, okay. So when, uh, when they built an altar here, let's see, and they put an animal on here, we're going to just put animal. Is a burn offering, if you'll notice, <clears throat> in verse 20, it says, And of every clean fowl at the end, and offered burn offerings unto the Lord. Or, or, I'm sorry, offered burn offerings on the altar. So when they killed the animal, the animal dies, and they burn the specific parts of that animal to God. And here is what it's illustrating. As the animal catches fire, the smoke ascends to God, or ascends upward. Okay, of course it doesn't reach the outer space or anything like that. But it's the figure, it's the it's the the illustration that these sacrifices made. It goes to God, and God smelled a sweet savor. In other words, God smelt a very nice aroma. Okay. Um, so when uh, when I go to take my wife to Spring Creek Barbecue in Tyler, or to Soul Man's Barbecue in the Metroplex, which I like, and we walk in, you smell a very pleasant smell from that meat and the wood burn. Um, and so the idea here is that the animal... Through, by virtue of the fire, the animal is reduced to ash. The ash then, by the heat of the fire, is sent up to God. So the animal is sent up to God through the smoke. The sacrifice is sent up to God, and God's pleased with it. Okay? So the whole idea here is, of the promised Savior one day, when He sacrificed for our sins, that sacrifice, that offering, being offered to God, God's going to be pleased with the offering. Since He's pleased with the offering, He's pleased with the offerer. He's, he, he's pleased with me based on the offering I gave Him because the animal represents me. 
Make sense? It dies in my place. It had no sin. God says, I accept that. I'm very pleased with that. And if you'll remember, those of you all who have knowledge of the New Testament, when the promised Savior did come, he was baptized by John the Baptist, which we'll get into later, and we'll explain baptism later. But when he comes up out of the Jordan River after being baptized, the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And he was letting everybody know, I am pleased with him, just like those animals. There was a sweet savor to the promised Savior, all right, if you would. And so, since God can be pleased with us on the basis of the sacrifice, He can be pleased with us on the basis of the promised Savior, who would give Himself a sacrifice for us. And so, having smelled this sweet savor, having smelled the animal, God says, I won't curse the curse anymore. On the basis of the offerings that were offered to me, I will no longer destroy the earth with a flood like I did before. And so he makes this promise. From now on, while the earth remains, if you look in verse 22, while the earth remains, what does that tell us? It tells us way back then, God didn't plan for the earth to remain. While the earth remains. In other words, there's going to be a time when the earth goes away. And there still will be. All right? In the, in the New Testament, we learn there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth for the older passed away. And so, but while the earth remains, he says, we're going to have seed time and harvest. There's going to be a time of planting, a time to harvest crops. There's going to be cold and there's going to be heat. There's going to be summer. There's going to be winter. There's going to be day and night. And it's going to continue to do that as long as the earth remains. And so we can count on that. It's going to happen. We're not worried about uh, climate change. or any, We're not worried about any of that stuff. It's going to happen just like God said. It has happened just like God said. And so chapter 9, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And so uh, he says, I, I, I want the earth replenished again. I want the earth filled up. I want the earth to be occupied uh, verse 2, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air and all that move upon the earth and upon all the fish of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. You have control over the creatures. You can hunt them. You can fish them. You know, you can drive them out and you can build in the territories. You are in charge. Of the earth, okay? So into your hand they're delivered. Um, verse 3, Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. But the flesh, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. Alright? So the only thing God forbade was for them to eat the blood of animals they could not eat the blood because he said that's where the life was was in the blood and uh, so they could not eat that and that brings us to an important principle that we'll look at again when we get to the old testament i'm sorry when we get into the law of the old testament all right verse 9 and surely your blood of your lives will i require 
At the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of every man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. What's he talking about? He explains in the next verse. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Man is different from the animals. Man is not an animal. People like to say we're part of the animal kingdom, and we're not. Man's different from the animals. Anyone with any sense can see that, and to say otherwise is, is really nonsensical. And so he says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. What's he saying here? That's the law. If somebody kills another person, then he says, I require you guys to kill him in return. That's what we would call today capital punishment. Okay? So, whether it's through shooting, hanging, electric chair, <laughs> guillotine, whatever, stoning, whatever, uh, if somebody kills another person, then that person is to be killed. And so, the death penalty is very biblical. It's very right. It's very just. Because when you take the life of a murderer, then you not only stop that person from ever murdering again, but you also put the fear of other people into, hey, this will happen to you if you take somebody's life. Okay? And so let's go ahead and look here now. Um, in verse 7, Genesis 9, 7, And you, be ye fruitful and multiply, bring forth a bundle in the earth, and multiply therein. So look again at God's mandate to Noah. Be fruitful. You get out and have a bunch of babies. Multiply. And bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. I, I want you to, to fill the earth back up. It was made to be occupied. And God spake unto Noah, verse 8, unto his son, saying, And I, behold, I will establish my covenant with you, and with your seed after you. So here we're going to have another covenant, another promise that God makes with Noah and his offspring. And with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. What is that covenant? Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. So will there be flooding in the earth? Yes, but there will never be another worldwide flooding. He'll never cut off all life from the earth again. And he's going to give them a promise uh, and, and a token to go with it. Verse 12, And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. Now, let's go ahead and look at this. This is a very important connection we have to make here. We have two concepts here. First is a covenant. What's a covenant? A covenant is a promise. It's a contract, if you will. Okay? There are two types of covenants, by the way. There's a unilateral covenant and a bilateral covenant. 
A bilateral covenant, by means what? Two. A bilateral covenant means, Chris, I will do A if you do B. That's a bilateral covenant. Me doing A is dependent upon you doing B. A unilateral covenant, what you and I mean, you and I, come on. No. Bi is two, like bicycle. What's a unicycle? Just one. Uni means one, all right? So a unilateral covenant is where only one person is involved in the covenant. So if I said, Chris, I will do A if you do B, that's a bilateral covenant. It involves both of us doing an action on our part. But if I said, Chris, I make the solemn promise to you that I will do A. Now it's a unilateral covenant. Now Chris doesn't have to do anything other than count on the fact that I'm going to handle my business like I promised. God is making a unilateral covenant here. He's not saying, I will never curse the earth again with a flood if you behave yourselves. You see? I will never curse the earth again with a flood unless I'm in a really bad mood one day and I change my mind. He's simply making a unilateral covenant. It's not going to happen again. And it was based on the sacrifices that Noah made. Unilateral covenants are important to understand and to understand the difference between the two. So, covenant is a promise. God is making a unilateral promise. Unilateral covenant. Uni, one. Because he never said, I'll do this contingent upon you doing the other. He just said, as long as... As long as the earth remains, this is what's going to happen. You have winter, you have summer, seed time, harvest, heat, cold, and I'll never again destroy the earth with a flood like I did this time. And now I'm going to give you a token of the covenant. Now, what's a token? Huh? Nope. Let me take you back to your glory days. How old are you? Oh, yeah. You'll remember. Take you back to Mazio's Pizza in Athens, Texas. You remember it? You remember the arcade room? What did you have to put in those arcades to play those games? Tokens. What did those tokens represent? What did you give in exchange for the token? Quarters, right? The token represented a quarter. The reason they wanted you to use tokens instead of the quarters was, once you bought tokens with those quarters, they weren't good anywhere else. So they knew if you had a few tokens left in your pocket, you're going to spend them before you leave because you can't spend them anywhere else outside of their place. But the token represented a quarter. A token is a, a, a representation of something else. Okay, A token is a representation of something else. It's something that represents some other thing. Make sense? The token that went into the, the, the games at the arcade represented, it was one thing that represented another thing, which was a quarter. 
God is saying, I'm going to give you a token of this promise that I made. I'm going to give you something that represents the promise I made. It's not the promise I made, just like the token's not a quarter. But it represents the promise I made. That I'll never again destroy the earth with a flood. That the ark that delivered man from the flood, delivered man from the worldwide flood for how long? Forever. You see that? This tells us several things. Number one, when God saves, He saves forever. When God saves and keeps us forever, it's based on a unilateral covenant, unilateral promise He makes. And when God does that, He always gives a token to illustrate the promise of the eternal salvation that He's accomplished. There was an eternal salvation from the flood that He accomplished in the ark. And God gave them a token to remind them of that promise. Let's see what that token was. It's good stuff. Don't forget this, because we'll see it again when we get to the book of Exodus. Look here now. Verse 19, here's the token. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. Ah, here we go now. The bow that God sets in the cloud is the what? The rainbow. Oh, this is nice. All right. I know, I know. I don't have colored chalk. You just have to imagine. So God says, I set my bow in the cloud. He said, there's a rainbow that comes in the cloud sometimes when it rains. And he says, in it, that rainbow, he says, will be for a token between me and the earth. Watch how this works. Verse 14. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. Now there's a couple things we see there. When, how does the cloud get over the earth? How does a cloud get over the earth? Look back in your Bible. Don't stare at me. Look in your Bible. How does a cloud get over the earth? Look back in, in uh, verse 14. How does a cloud get over the earth? Not you, Jonathan. Read verse 14. God brings the cloud over the earth. That's right. When I bring the cloud over the earth, what do we learn from that? God's in control of all the storms, in control of all the weather, in control of everything. Who brought the flood? God did. Who brought the simple cloud? God does. And he says, when I bring a cloud over the earth, 
that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. So when God brings a cloud over the earth and you see the rainbow in the cloud, look what happens, verse 15. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall no more become a flood, destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and ever, every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. Now, God said, verse 17, And God said to Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I, which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. You see what God's doing here. He, through this token, He's giving them assurance. He says... I'm going to bring a cloud over the earth in the future. And it's going to come to pass that that rainbow is going to be seen in that cloud. We always look up to see the rainbow, don't we? We don't look down. It's up in the clouds. And God says, when that rainbow appears, I'm going to look at that rainbow. And when I see the rainbow, I'm going to remember the promise that I made. Now, you'll see tokens of covenants like this all throughout the Bible, not just between God and man, but between man and other men. You'll see them, for example, make a pillar of stones. And like uh, uh, me and and, uh, uh, Eddie, let's say that we made a promise to each other that, hey, my family won't attack your family, your family doesn't attack my family, you know, our people or whatever, you know, your tribe leaves my tribe alone. And he says, we'll agree to that. And so we'll say, here's what we'll do. We're going to build this monument here. And then every time we see it, we'll remember, hey, we made this agreement here. And it'll refresh our memory. Hey, we're, we're on the same side. We don't, want to, we don't want to put that out of our mind. It'll be a, a witness between me and you that we made this covenant. Okay? And so this is what it is between God and man. God makes the covenant between him and every living thing. And now the rainbow becomes the token. So God sees it. He remembers the promise. He keeps the promise. Man, therefore, can look at the rainbow, see the rainbow, and be assured that God's promise will be kept. When the rainbow is seen, they don't worry about the worldwide flood anymore. Because can't you imagine, after going through something as uh, traumatic as Noah and his family went through with that flood. The screams of the people coming out and everyone's God. I mean, there's nothing ain't a bird in the sky. There's nothing. And can't you imagine the next time that they heard thunder and a storm cloud coming up and wind coming up, they're going, oh boy. Right? And so this rainbow became a token, an assurance. God sees it. He keeps His promise. They see it. They're assured that God's going to keep it. Think about that rainbow just a moment. When when you put the tokens, you did play the arcades, didn't you? When you put those tokens in the arcades, they looked somewhat like a quarter, didn't they? They, they, they were the same shape, the same dimensions pretty much. Um, they very much resembled that uh, that quarter. In the same way, this rainbow 
very much resembles the salvation of that ark. The the ark was a picture of the promised Savior. The rainbow is a picture of the promised Savior as well, which the ark also was. Think about this rainbow. When you were a boy, or even today, but think about when you're a little boy or a little girl, and you're out playing outside, and you're having a great time, and then suddenly the sun begins to grow dark. The wind begins to pick up. You can hear thunder in the background as it's coming. Leaves are blowing across the ground. The trees are starting to go back and forth. And then, and lightning starts to happen. And your mother opens the door and says, Jonathan, come inside. Looks like it's about to be a storm. You ever been called in like that before, Jonathan? Yes. Yeah. But let me tell you what's probably never happened. After that storm's over, have you ever seen a rainbow after the storm? Have you ever had your mama or your daddy come to the door and say, Jonathan, get inside, son. Looks like a rainbow's coming. Yeah. Nobody gets called inside to take shelter from the rainbow. The rainbow to everybody only comes after the storm has passed. You see? After the storm is over. When we look at the promised Savior and we see Him bearing the judgment of our sin on the cross, that gives us the peace that judgment has passed. The storm is over. You see? The cross in the New Testament, becomes the token of God's covenant that He made with man back in the Garden of Eden, that He would send the Savior one day, the seed of the woman, to conquer the serpent and to overcome our sin and death. See how that works? Fascinatingly, we have to end with this, the colors of the rainbow are precise. They never change. God created light. And with the rainbow that He created, He made it so that the light that diffuses in those water droplets would create a certain color spectrum. Roy B. Give, something like that. It's like red, orange, yellow, right? And when you look at it, here's what, here's what I found. I studied this out years ago. When you look at it, Siri, what are the colors of the rainbow? I found red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, and sky blue. Roy G. Biv. Violet. Roy G. Biv. 
style it. All the colors of the rainbow, the red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. These are the main colors of the rainbow. Every color in between is the combination of those two colors. Red, yellow, make orange. Yellow and blue make green. Blue and purple make indigo. Something like that. Violet. When you get into the Old Testament, there are colors that the high priest wears on his garments. It's these. He's literally wearing the rainbow. Oh, man. Because the sacrifices that he makes represent the coming sacrifice that like the ark will not save mankind from the flood forever but will save mankind from his sin forever and that covenant that God made back in the garden of Eden when he said I will put enmity between you and the woman between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel that was a unilateral covenant He didn't say, if A, then I'll do B. He said, this is what I'm going to do. God told Noah, I will bring a flood of waters. There's going to be an ark. It's going to save you and nobody else. And in the same way, the work that Jesus did for us on the cross is the token that once God's judgment passes over Christ... There's no fear of judgment for us anymore. All that's left is the rainbow on the cross. There's no way that man could have wrote a book like the Bible so complex, so intricate, and so interwoven over thousands of years and come up with such an amazing message that we have. His fingerprints of His divine authorship are all over God's Word, all over the Bible. And as we study it, it's like dusting those latent prints. As you study it, they start showing up. You realize, God wrote that. God wrote that. God wrote that. God wrote that. Because they're never seen until you study it out. With that, we'll go ahead and stop. And Lord willing, we'll take back up next Lord's Day.